What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the reading of the New York Times for Friday, July 8, 2022. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that makes it difficult to read printed material. The New York Times is donated to Radio Eye by the Lexington Herald Leader. Your reader for today is Blanca Michael Ward. We begin with Merriam-Webster's word of the day, postulate, a verb, postulate, P-O-S-T-U-L-A-T-E, what it means. To postulate means to assume or claim something, such as an idea or theory, as true, especially for the purposes of starting a discussion. Example. The famous science fiction author often postulates in interviews that we live in but one of an infinite number of parallel universes. Merriam-Webster's Word of the Day, Postulate. We now turn to the New York Times combined print and ebook fiction bestseller books. In fiction, we begin with number one on the list, 167 weeks on the list, with A Crawdad Sing by Delia Owens. In second place, 55 weeks on the list, It Ends With Us by Colleen Hoover. In third place, 30 weeks on the list, Verity, also by Colleen Hoover. In fourth place, 25 weeks on the list, also by Colleen Hoover. Ugly Love, and in fifth place, three weeks on the list, The Hotel Nantucket by Ellen Hildebrand. In nonfiction, we have, in first place, three weeks on the list, Battle for the American Mind by Pete Hagseth with David Goodwin. In second place, New This Week, Why We Did It, by Tim Miller. In third place and 97 weeks on the list, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. In fourth place, five weeks on the list, Happy Go Lucky by David Sedaris. And in fifth place, two weeks on the list, An Immense World by Ed Young. We now turn to the front page of the New York Times and today's headlines. Johnson to exit, ending a tenure full of scandal. British leader bows to party pressure, steep challenges await successor. He charms, lies, and blusters. It always saved him till now. Griner pleads guilty to drug charges in Russia. Move could clear path to diplomatic deal or clemency. In oil country, fears of a shift to clean power. With employers eager to hire, many women are missing out. Lack of care workers limits job options. 
and we begin with this story. <clears throat> Boris Johnson quits amid latest scandal, a messy end to a messy tenure. This was written by Mark Landler and Stephen Castle, Dateline, London. Bowing to intense pressure from his own party, Prime Minister Boris Johnson of Britain said Thursday that he would step down, ending a stormy three-year tenure that was marked by a landslide election victory and a successful drive to pull Britain out of the European Union, but collapsed under the weight of relentless scandals. Mr. Johnson insisted, even on Wednesday night, that he would fight to remain in power. But only hours later, he gave way, overwhelmed by a mutiny in his cabinet, a wave of government resignations and a devastating loss of party support, all prompted by his handling of the latest scandal to engulf his leadership. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader, Mr. Johnson said in a brief midday appearance outside 10 Downing Street. The process of choosing that new leader should begin now. The decision capped a dizzying 48 hours in British, British politics that began Tuesday evening with the unexpected resignations of two of the highest-ranking cabinet ministers, followed by dozens of resignations of other ministers and officials, all day Wednesday and into Thursday morning. Whoever takes over as prime minister will inherit a daunting set of challenges with double-digit inflation, mushrooming labor unrest, and the specter of a recession. Britain shares those problems with other advanced economies, but there is evidence that Brexit has imposed an extra burden on its economy. And even with Mr. Johnson's announcement, the fight over his status may not be finished. He said he would remain in his post until a new party leader was in place, a process that could take several months. But some conservatives argued that Mr. Johnson should not be allowed to stay, even as a caretaker figure. John Major, former prime minister, wrote to one of the party's top officials, Graham Brady, urging that Mr. Johnson either hand over his duties to the deputy prime minister, Dominic Robb, or that the party arrange for a swift election of a new leader by lawmakers, curtailing the decision-making role of rank-and-file party members. The tensions underscore just how much resentment Mr. Johnson has stored up within the party after months of embarrassing headlines about illicit parties held at Downing Street during the coronavirus pandemic and sexual misconduct and bullying charges against a conservative lawmaker promoted by Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson made clear he was leaving against his wishes, saying he had tried to hold on because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to continue the work he had done since 2019, when he led the Conservative Party to a landslide election victory on a vow to get Brexit done. His announcement contained no acknowledgement of his own role in his downfall, casting it instead as a reflection of his fellow lawmakers' attitudes. I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we are delivering so much, 
when we have such a vast mandate and when we are actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, Mr. Johnson said to an audience that included his wife, Carrie, who held the couple's baby daughter, Romy. But as we have seen at Westminster, the herd instinct is powerful, and when the herd moves, it moves, Mr. Johnson added. Mr. Johnson said he expected the timetable for his departure and the selection of a successor to be decided on Monday by the 1922 committee, the powerful body that represents Conservative Party backbench lawmakers. At the very latest, the committee will want to install a new party leader who will become prime minister by the time of the annual party conference in the fall, which conservatives hope to use as a chance to reset. Among potential candidates are the two former cabinet ministers whose bombshell resignations on Tuesday touched off the cascade of departures. Rishi Sanak, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Sajid Javid, who was the Health Secretary. Others include Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, Suella Breverman, the Attorney General, and Nadheem Sahawi, who briefly replaced Mr. Sunak as Chancellor. There are also two outsiders, Jeremy Hunt, former Foreign Secretary who challenged Mr. Johnson for the party leadership in 2019, and Tom Tugendhat, Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Mr. Johnson's downfall scrambles the broader political landscape in Britain, where the opposition Labour Party had seized a small but persistent lead in the polls over the Conservatives ahead of the next election, which must take place no later than January 2025. While Labour politicians viewed the turmoil in the Tory party with relish, they may feel ambivalence about the departure of Mr. Johnson, a polarizing figure who has lost much of the vote-getting appeal he had in 2019. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, said it was good news for the country that Boris Johnson has resigned, but added, it should have happened long ago. Mr. Johnson, the Prime Minister since July 2019, leaves a complicated legacy marked by his aggressive defense of Ukraine, but also by domestic programs that often seem driven as much by political as policy considerations. The Prime Minister's staunch support of Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky has made him a popular figure in Ukraine and reinforced Britain's role as a key member of the NATO alliance. I look forward to continuing our close cooperation with the government of the United Kingdom, President Biden said Thursday, adding, that includes maintaining a strong and united approach to supporting the people of Ukraine as they defend themselves against Putin's brutal war on their democracy. At home, Mr. Johnson's signature program, Leveling Up, which was aimed at elevating the economic prospects of Britain's North, was marked by a notable absence of financing or a workable plan to execute it. His hardline stance toward migrants arriving at Britain's shores pleased his conservative loyalists, but drew condemnation from liberals and rights groups most especially his recent plan to send refugees from Britain to Rwanda.
But it was yet another scandal that sealed Mr. Johnson's fate. His latest troubles erupted last week after a conservative lawmaker, Chris Pincher, became drunk at an exclusive London club where it was alleged he groped two men. Despite earlier complaints of inappropriate behavior by Mr. Pincher, Mr. Johnson had appointed him in February to a senior party position. Mr. Johnson at first denied being aware of the previous complaints, but it later emerged that he had known about them, and on Tuesday he apologized and acknowledged that it was a mistake to have named Mr. Pincher to the elevated position. For many conservatives, it was a scandal too far, especially as Downing Street had sent out others, including a cabinet minister, to repeat erroneous statements on its behalf. With his support in the party evaporating, Mr. Johnson claimed that the party's victory in 2019 gave him a popular mandate, but constitutional experts dismissed that as a willful misreading of the British system. Britain has a parliamentary, not a presidential system, said Vernon Bogdanor, professor of government at King's College, London. Johnson's authority came as leader of the Conservative Party in the House of Commons. But when the followers, Conservative MPs, cease to follow, the leader ceases to lead. Despite everything stacked against him, Mr. Johnson did not go quietly. When one of his closest allies, Michael Gove, told him on Wednesday that it was time to go, he responded by firing Mr. Gove from his cabinet post that evening. Still, the blows kept coming. Simon Hart, the Welsh secretary, was next to quit. The attorney general, Ms. Breverman, not only called for Mr. Johnson to go, but also declared herself a candidate to succeed him. By the end of Wednesday, so many ministers or senior aides had resigned that it threatened to cripple decision-making in several government departments. Downing Street said Mr. Johnson was at his desk on Thursday morning working on how to reshuffle his top team, but there were too many vacant jobs and too few loyalists to fill them. Early on Thursday, another cabinet minister, Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland secretary, quit, saying that things were now past the point of no return, adding, I cannot sacrifice my personal integrity to defend things as they stand now. Six lower-ranking ministers followed suit, including the security minister, Damien Hines, and a treasury minister, Helen Waitley. Mr. Johnson seems... Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Finally, to have gotten the message when even those he had just promoted turned on him. Less than 48 hours after becoming chancellor, Mr. Zahawi demanded that Mr. Johnson stand aside. Then the cabinet's newest member, Michelle Donlan, who had been appointed to replace Mr. Zahawi in his previous role as education secretary, resigned from her new position. Soon after, word came from Downing Street that Mr. Johnson had acknowledged what had been evident for some time that his time in the building was coming to an end and that he would speak to the nation later on Thursday. We continue with the news analysis in this related story. Johnson's lies worked for years until they didn't. This was written by Sarah Lyle. After a lifetime of swaggering and dissembling his way through one scandal after another on the strength of his prodigious political skills, a potent mix of charm, guile, ruthlessness, hubris, oratorical dexterity, and rumpled Bodhausian bluster, Boris Johnson (coughs) has finally reached the end. It seems the laws of gravity apply to him after all. It's not that he ever fooled anyone about who he really was. Over the years, he has routinely been described as mendacious, irresponsible, reckless, and lacking any coherent philosophy other than wanting to seize and hold on to power. People have known that Boris Johnson lies for 30 years. The writer and academic Rory Stewart, a former conservative member of parliament, said recently, He's probably the best liar we've ever had as a prime minister. He knows a hundred different ways to lie. In contrast to former President Donald J. Trump, another politician with an improvisational and often distant relationship to the truth, Mr. Johnson's approach has rarely been to double down on his lies or to delude himself for consistency's sake into acting as if they were true. Rather, he recasts them to fit new information that comes to light, as if the truth were a fungible concept no more solid than quicksand. Mislead, omit, obfuscate, bluster, deny, deflect, attack, apologize, while implying that he has done nothing wrong. The British Prime Minister's blueprint for dealing with a crisis, his critics say, almost never begins and rarely ends with simply telling the truth. That approach worked for him for years until finally it didn't. His government weathered scandal after scandal, much of it centered on Mr. Johnson's own behavior. He was rebuked by the government's own ethics advisor after a wealthy conservative donor contributed tens of thousands of pounds to help him refurbish his apartment. Mr. Johnson repaid the money. There were the private text messages he exchanged with a wealthy British businessman over his plan to manufacture ventilators in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, which raised questions of impropriety. There was an almost farcical accrual of 
embarrassing disclosures about how often Mr. Johnson's aides, and sometimes Mr. Johnson, attended boozy parties during the worst days of the COVID lockdown, flagrantly violating rules the country had set for itself. In the end, the Prime Minister's different explanations for what he knew and when about Chris Pincher, a conservative legislator accused of sexual impropriety, finally tipped the scales against him. It was clear that he had once again failed to tell the truth. He's been found out, said Anthony Sargent, 44, a software developer who lives in the northern city of Wakefield. The annoying thing about it is the signs were there. He's been sacked from previous journalism roles for lying, Mr. Sargent went on, pointing to the time Mr. Johnson, then a young reporter, was fired from the Times of London for making up a quote. Yet there he was, the leader of the Conservative Party, becoming the Prime Minister. After helping engineer the downfall of his competent but lackluster predecessor, Theresa May, in 2019, Mr. Johnson entered office with an energetic mandate for change. His populist message, buoyant personality and easy promises to cut taxes and red tape, free Britain from the burdens of belonging to the European Union and restore the country's pride in itself, appealed to a public weary of the brutal fight over the Brexit referendum and eager to embrace someone who appeared to be expressing what they themselves felt. But like Mr. Trump, who put a more sinister cast on his own populist message, Mr. Johnson has always behaved as if he were bigger than the office he held, as if the damage he caused was inconsequential as long as he could remain in power. His resignation speech, in which he vowed to remain in office until the conservatives could choose a new leader, was notable for its lack of self-awareness and its misreading of the curdled mood of his former supporters. Born Alexander Boris de Fleffel Johnson, he began using Boris in a sort of rebranded exercise in high school. The soon-to-be ex-prime minister has a long and well-documented history both of evading the truth and of acting as if he believes himself to be exempt from the normal rules of behavior. His many years in public life as a newspaper reporter and columnist, as the editor of an influential London political magazine, as a politician, have left a trail of witnesses to and victims of his slippery nature. When he was editor of The Spectator magazine, he lied to the editor, Conrad Black, promising not to serve in Parliament while working at the magazine. He did. When he was first elected to Parliament, he lied to his constituents when he promised to quit his Spectator job. He didn't. As a legislator, he lied to the party leader, Michael Howard, and to the news media, when he publicly declared he had not had an affair with a writer for the magazine, nor gotten her pregnant and paid for her abortion. He had done all of that. In a strange incident that he found hilarious, but that epitomized his general lack of seriousness, in 2002, he ordered an employee at The Spectator to impersonate him when a photographer for the New York Times arrived to take his picture 
fully expecting the Times to embarrass itself by publishing a photograph of the wrong person. The ruse was discovered only toward the end of the photo shoot when the magazine's publisher found out what was happening. When he was the Brussels correspondent for the right-leaning Daily Telegraph in the late 1980s, Mr. Johnson wrote highly entertaining but blatantly inaccurate articles designed to paint the European Union as a factory of petty regulation intent on stamping out British individuality, articles that helped establish an anti-Europe narrative for a generation of conservatives and paved the way for Brexit two decades later. Mr. Johnson himself described the experience years later to the BBC as akin to chucking rocks over the garden wall and then realizing that everything I wrote from Brussels was having this amazing, explosive effect on the Tory party. And it really gave me this, I suppose, rather weird sense of power, he said. In 2016, serving simultaneously as Mayor of London and a Member of Parliament, Mr. Johnson betrayed the Conservative Party leader, Prime Minister David Cameron, when he led the pro-Leave side of the Brexit debate, contrary to the party's position. Serving as Foreign Secretary under Mr. Cameron's successor, Ms. May, he stabbed her in the back and set the stage for his own accession to the job. By resigning from the government and publicly denouncing the Brexit agreement she had spent months negotiating. His womanizing and affairs were an open secret during his long marriage to his second wife, Marina Wheeler, the mother of four of his at least seven children. They separated when his affair with a conservative official, Carrie Simons, now the mother of two of the seven, came to light. He has at least one child, a daughter born during a, a liaison with a married advisor when he was the still-married mayor of London in the early 2010s. I would not take Boris's word about whether it is Monday or Tuesday. Max Hastings, the Telegraph editor who hired Mr. Johnson as his Brussels correspondent, once said, In 2019, when Mr. Johnson was poised to become prime minister, Mr. Hastings wrote an article entitled, I was Boris Johnson's boss. He is utterly unfit to be prime minister. In it, he called Mr. Johnson a cavorting charlatan who suffered from moral bankruptcy and exhibited a contempt for the truth. Mr. Hastings, who employed Mr. Johnson when the future prime minister was in his 20s, was not the first to raise questions about his seriousness of purpose and inflated sense of self. When Mr. Johnson was 17 and a student at Eton College, the all-boys boarding school that caters to the country's elites, his classics teacher sent a letter home to Mr. Johnson's father, Stanley. Boris really has adopted a disgracefully cavalier attitude to his classical studies the teacher, Martin Hammond, wrote, and sometimes seems affronted when criticized for what amounts to a gross failure of responsibility. He added, speaking of the teenager who would grow up to be prime minister, I think he honestly believes that it is churlish of us not to regard him as an exception, one 
who should be free of the network of obligation that binds everyone else. We continue with this story. Quitting oil income is hard, even for states that want climate action. This was written by Brad Plumer, who has spent time in the oil fields of California where many communities are built on fossil fuels. Dateline, Taft, California. Every five years, this city of 7,000 hosts a rollicking Old West theme festival known as Oil Dorado. High schoolers decorate parade floats with derricks and pump jacks. Young women vie for the crown in a Maids of Petroleum beauty pageant. It's a celebration of an industry that has sustained the local economy for the past century. This is oil country in a state that leads the country in environmental regulation. With wildfires and drought ravaging California, Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, wants to end oil drilling in the state by 2045. That has provoked angst and fierce resistance here in Kern County, where oil and gas tax revenues help to pay for everything, from elementary schools to firefighters to mosquito control. Nowhere else in California is tied to oil and gas the way we are, and we can't replace what that brings overnight, said Ryan Alsop, Chief Administrative Officer in Kern County, a region north of Los Angeles. It's not just tens of thousands of jobs, it's also hundreds of millions of dollars in annual tax revenue that we rely on to fund our schools, parks, libraries, public safety, public health. Across the United States, dozens of states and communities rely on fossil fuels to fund aspects of daily life. In Wyoming, more than half of state and local tax revenues comes from fossil fuels. In New Mexico, an oil boom has bankrolled free college for residents and expanded medical care for new mothers. Oil and gas money is so embedded in many local budgets, it's difficult to imagine a future without it. Disentangling communities from fossil fuel income poses a major obstacle in the fight against climate change. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One study found that if nations followed the urging of scientists and cut emissions from oil, gas, and coal deeply enough to avert catastrophic warming, 
United States tax revenues from oil and gas production, currently about $34 billion per year, could fall by two-thirds by 2050. While Kern County produces 70% of California's oil, it is also the state's largest supplier of wind and solar power. But renewable energy doesn't generate as much tax revenue as fossil fuels, partly because California exempts solar panels from property taxes to spur construction. And jobs in the wind and solar industry, industries generally don't pay as much or last as long as those in the oil fields. So Kern County is feuding with the governor. Local officials who have unsuccessfully sued to block Governor Newsom's restrictions on drilling are backing a plan for up to 43,000 new wells and have threatened to halt solar projects in response to the state's oil crackdown. Whether Kern County can transition to cleaner energy could offer a model or a cautionary tale to the rest of the nation. California is about 10 years ahead of other places on climate policy, but I expect we'll see similar issues pop up across the United States, said Kyle Meng, an economist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. When you look at how deeply oil and gas is woven into the fabric of many communities, providing money for schools, hospitals, roads, the shift to clean energy can get really complicated really fast. Oil supports everything we have. Nestled in the southwest corner of the San Joaquin Valley, Taft was built above the Midway Sunset oil field, California's largest after a gusher in 1910 sent millions of gallons of crude raining from the sky. Today, Taft is surrounded by roughly 10,000 wells, and oil defines the city. Downtown features the oil worker monument, a towering bronze statue of a derrick and a rustabout wielding a wrench. The Black Gold Brewing Company sells oil-themed beers like Petroleum Highway Porter, along with Thai food, guns, and ammunition. The West Kern Oil Museum walks visitors through thousands of modern products derived from petroleum, from fertilizer, to nail polish. We take a lot of pride in what we do here in our contribution to America's energy security, said Dave Knorr, a former oil field worker and mayor of Taft since 2016, as he drove his pickup truck through town one recent morning. And our industry partners have been incredibly generous to our community in return. Property taxes from oil and gas fund tasks well-kept parks and recreation centers. The local college built a new classroom and hired staff to teach anatomy with funding from Chevron. Millions of dollars in donations from oil companies support the Taft Oil Technology Academy, a popular high school program where students learn petroleum geology, fly drones, and research topics like carbon dioxide recycling. But Taft's boom years may be over, and the future is uncertain. Even as Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent oil prices soaring, crude production from California's fields keeps declining. Much of that drop is structural. 
The state's output peaked in 1985 after decades of exploitation, and the remaining heavy oil requires sophisticated techniques like steam injection to extract. At the same time, local officials and oil companies say production has been further depressed because state regulators have made it increasingly difficult to obtain drilling permits. As California has suffered through record-breaking heat waves, droughts and wildfires, the state has moved to slash greenhouse gases that result from burning oil, gas, and coal and are rapidly heating the planet. Since 2019, the annual number of permits issued by state regulators to drill new wells or modify existing ones has fallen by roughly half and regulators have restricted techniques like hydraulic fracturing. Kern County wants to take over permitting, permitting from the state, aiming to approve thousands of new wells by 2035, but courts have blocked these efforts. In the Midway Sunset Field, the dusty foothills are covered by a thicket of steam pipes, power lines, and pump jacks, quietly bobbing up and down, pulling oil from the ground. It's actually unusual how quiet it is right now, said Fred Holmes, chairman of a small oil company who also runs a foundation providing college scholarships to local students, surveying one of his leases beneath the unyielding sun. If we could get permits to drill new wells, there'd be a lot of activity to see, but there's nothing going on. The drilling slowdown threatened Kern County's finances, officials say. In 2020, oil and gas generated nearly one-quarter of the county's property tax revenue, $197 million, which helps fund schools, hospitals, law enforcement, water agencies, and other programs. In recent years, sharp swings in oil prices have forced painful cuts including staffing reductions at fire stations and library closures. The latest price spike has provided some relief, but officials say that as drilling declines, it will get harder to provide critical service in a county with 900,000 people and some of California's highest poverty rates. The problem is we've got crime rates going up, homelessness going up, the cost of living is going up, our population is increasing, Mr. Alsop said, and the revenues we need to address these things are stagnating, all because of our unique position on oil and gas. Last year, Taft's voters agreed to increase local sales taxes to avert a fiscal crisis and patch up shortfalls in the firefighting budget. If the governor says no to new oil and gas, Every part of Taft is going to feel the pain, Mayor Knorr said. Think of all the social programs that won't get funded. Who is that going to hurt most? It's going to be people of color, the poor. It angers me to no end. As gasoline prices soar, local officials say producers should be unleashed. They argue that California's appetite for petroleum remains high, with electric cars still a fraction of the market. The state imports over half its oil from foreign countries, including from places like the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador. As long as we're still using oil, 
Doesn't it make more sense to get every last drop we can right here in Kern County where it provides jobs and tax revenue? said Zach Scrivener, a county supervisor. To ease the transition from fossil fuels, Governor Newsom has proposed $65 million to support and retrain displaced oil and gas workers, $200 million to clean up abandoned wells, and $450 million to help communities diversify their economies. Later is too late when it comes to climate change, and California is moving aggressively to deploy clean energy and cut pollution in our communities, said Alex Stack, spokesman for the governor. This administration has committed unprecedented funding to support the vision of regional leaders to help create more diversified, inclusive local economies. Not everyone in Kern County wants more drilling. In the agricultural town of Shafter, scattered pump jacks clank amid almond groves. There are three fracking wells within a half mile of Sequoia Elementary School, one visible from the playground. In 2015, a parent sued the state over health risks from pollution. Kern County has some of the nation's worst air pollution partly owing to geography. The valley is a bowl that traps pollutants. Researchers say oil and gas is a significant source of smog-forming compounds like sulfur oxides. A state health panel concluded that living near active wells increases the risk of asthma, heart attacks, and premature births. The pollution is everywhere, said Annabel Marquez, 68, a Shafter resident whose grandchildren have asthma. You can smell it. It dries out your eyes and your throat. Miss Marquez said her pleas to restrict drilling locally have fallen on deaf ears. When people bring home checks from the oil industry, it's not something that they're usually willing to stand against, she said. In places like Taft, economic worries dominate. The city's population has been shrinking. Vacant storefronts dot the main street. Two years ago, a nearby federal prison closed, delivering another blow. Renee Hill, 63, grew up in the city, left, and then returned a decade ago with her husband to open an antique and flower shop on Taft's main drag, hoping to help revive downtown. Oil supports everything we have, Miss Hill said. If oil goes away, we don't have anything else. We're 15 miles from the nearest highway, so we're not going to get Amazon warehouses. This isn't some seaside parasite that will bring in tourists. I wish there was something else we could do, but that's the reality. Communities built on fossil fuels. Nationwide, 21 states produce <clears throat> significant amounts of oil, gas, and coal, <coughs> filling their coffers with property taxes, royalties, lease sales, and fees. According to a recent study by Resources for the Future, a nonpartisan research group, the most reliant states include Wyoming, which gets 59% of state and local tax revenue from oil, coal, and gas, followed by North Dakota at 31%, Alaska at 21%, 
New Mexico at 15% and West Virginia at 9.4%. Montana, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Texas get at least 7% of in-state revenue from fossil fuels. Tax revenues aren't as visceral as jobs. Everyone understands how painful it is to lose a job, said Daniel Ramey, a fellow at Resources for the Future. But in raw numerical terms, it's just a big challenge. Wyoming, which mines 40% of America's coal, has faced budget crunches as coal power has dwindled nationally, forcing cuts to colleges and health care. State lawmakers have sought to prop up coal, passing laws that make it harder for utilities to close coal plants and threatening to sue other states that hurt Wyoming's coal industry. It's not a completely irrational response, said Robert Goodby, an economist at the University of Wyoming. If you're backed up against a cliff, it might be inevitable that you're going to fall off, but you're still going to fight it for as long as possible. Even states receptive to climate action can find themselves in a bind. In New Mexico, the second biggest oil producing state, surging revenues have enabled the legislature to raise teacher salaries, provide free daycare, and fund new health and criminal justice programs. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, a Democrat, has promised to tackle global warming and signed legislation requiring utilities to shift to carbon-free electricity by 2045 while providing money to coal communities hurt by planned retirements. Still, Ms. Lujan Grisham has criticized President Biden's plans to limit oil and gas drilling on federal lands, a major source of state revenue. This spring, lawmakers shelved legislation to have the state's greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. The New Mexico Oil and Gas Association has campaigned against production curbs. With, with Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One ad showing children in a classroom warning. Proposed laws aimed at oil and gas would take billions away from public education, gutting our schools, reading programs, sports, even school lunches, all at risk. Experts say oil and gas communities should start planning now or risk the fate of regions in Appalachia that suffered after the rise of cheap natural gas hobbled the coal industry. You look at what happened to some of those coal communities, and it's a terrifying scenario, said David Twan, the city administrator of Williston, North Dakota, which has doubled in population since 2010 amid an oil boom. To date, few places have gracefully navigated the end of fossil fuels. Tonawanda, New York, a town of 74,000 north of Buffalo, lost millions in tax revenue after a coal plant closed in 2015. 
The state legislature helped replace the funds and the town is now looking to redevelop its waterfront and expand industries like tire manufacturing. But not all states can afford to do what New York did, experts say, and the federal government may need to step in. In May, Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat of Colorado, introduced legislation to help replace local revenue when fossil fuel facilities close. He wrote the bill after visiting towns in northwest Colorado where planned coal plant and mine shutdowns could cut tax revenue in half. To me, this is a big obstacle to climate change, Mr. Bennett said. We have struggled to make progress on this issue because we haven't been able to provide a persuasive vision of what an energy transition will look like to some of the communities that will be most affected. A rocky road to clean energy. An hour's drive east of Taft, scrubby flatlands give way to the Tehachapi Mountains, which contain some of America's largest wind farms. Further east lies the Mojave Desert, where acres of solar panels have proliferated. Kern County has become California's most important source of renewable energy, providing half the state's wind power and one quarter of its solar power. One afternoon in Bakersfield, at the Union Office of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 428, former oil workers practiced bending conduit, the tubes used to route wiring as they trained to become electricians. Richard Romero, 35, was an oil rig operator for 11 years, but left after the last price crash. I got sick of the ups and downs, he said. It just seems like everything's going green at some point. There's pretty much no future in oil anymore. In theory, renewable energy could offer an economic alternative to oil, gas, and coal. A Brookings Institution analysis found that a quarter of U.S. counties with the greatest potential for wind and solar power are currently fossil fuel hubs. But the transition is far from simple. Historically, oil and gas has been one of Kern County's few industries where workers without college degrees can find high-paying jobs. The average salary is $80,000. Solar and wind farms require lots of construction work, but fewer employees to operate. Kern County's biggest employer is agriculture, but in 2019, it had roughly 16,000 oil and gas jobs and 2,500 renewable energy jobs. In the Midway Sunset Field, Eddie Carmichael, a 62-year-old welder, was repairing worn-out steam pipes. He has worked in oil since he was 20 and put four children through college. He was skeptical he could find comparable work elsewhere. I could go flip burgers, I guess, but that's not going to do me any good, he said. That's not going to pay my health insurance. There are also revenue concerns. In 2020, Kern County Solar Farms generated just $1.5 million in property taxes, less than 1% of, of what fossil fuels did, partly because of the state tax exemption for solar panels, 
a policy the county has fought to change. Local leaders and businesses are discussing strategies to diversify Kern County's economy by expanding industries like aerospace, manufacturing, new energy sources like hydrogen or biodiesel, or even carbon capture technology. Oil is so culturally ingrained here that it's difficult for many people to imagine we could do anything else, said Mercedes Macias, a senior organizer with the Sierra Club in Kern County. At the same time, I don't envy the supervisors trying to figure this out because it's not like anyone has step-by-step -step instructions for how to reinvent an economy that's so dependent on fossil fuels. We turn to this story. Jobs are plenty, but a shortage of care keeps many women from benefiting. The story was written by Lydia DeFillis, Gianna Smilik, and Ben Castleman. A dearth of childcare and elder care choices is causing many women to reorganize their working lives and prompting some to forego jobs altogether hurting the economy at a moment when companies are desperate to hire and forcing trade-offs that could impair careers. Care workers have left the industry in large numbers amid the pandemic, shrinking the number of nursery and nursing home employees by hundreds of thousands. At the same time, coronavirus outbreaks have led to intermittent school shutdowns, which in turn have made care demands less predictable and increased the need for reliable backup options. Although plenty of men have also taken on increased care duties since the pandemic began, women perform most caregiving in America, according to the Labor Department. They have made a surprising return to the labor market in spite of that challenge. Federal data shows that the share of women participating in the labor market by working or by looking for jobs remains depressed relative to 2019, but it has recovered roughly as much as the share for men has. Mothers still work less than other women, but the gap between the two has narrowed to about the level that prevailed before the pandemic, an analysis by the Federal Reserve found. Yet those signs of a comeback hide strains beneath the surface. A deeper dive into the Labor Department's monthly survey of households shows that unmarried women without college degrees who have young children have returned to work more slowly than others, a sign that the shortage of care is making them particularly vulnerable. Self-employment has also surged among mothers, suggesting that many women are finding ways to make work more flexible as they scramble to balance care responsibilities with their need to earn money. Other women talk about putting in fewer hours and juggling increased workloads. In February, about 39% of women with children younger than five told Stanford's rapid survey that they had quit their jobs or reduced their hours since the pandemic began, up from 33% at the same time last year. 
More than 90% of those women said they did so of their own accord, not because they were laid off or had their hours cut. Last year, that number was 65%. Those forced to cut back on work could face lasting disadvantages. They are missing out on an unusual moment of worker power in which many employees are bargaining for higher wages or switching to more lucrative jobs. Right now, the fields for women are most concentrated, including service sector jobs in hospitality and healthcare, have some of the most openings and the most rapid pay growth. I think it will be really interesting to see what the long-term consequences are on mother's career opportunities, said Arian Hedgewish, the program director in employment and earnings at the Institute for Women's Policy Research. Women have continued to work, but they clearly had to cut back. America's long-running caregiving shortage for both children and older adults was compounded by the pandemic. The professional caregiving workforce, also disproportionately female, hasn't recovered. More than one child care worker in 10 hasn't returned, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Although that data may not capture all the single employee home-based operators that make up a huge part of the sector, the number of nursing home workers remains 11.5% below its level in February 2020. Together, the two categories represent a loss of 500,000 jobs. For women, that's the double whammy. Most of those workers are women, and most of the people who need those supports to enter the workforce themselves are women, said Catherine Gallagher-Robbins, a senior fellow with the National Partnership for Women and Families. At the same time, there is new demand for care. After a decrease in the number of births early in the pandemic, nearly 3.7 million people were born last year, up 1% from 2020, and the first such increase since 2014. Christy Charney, a college administrative assistant in Fort Collins, Colorado, recently talked to her manager about dialing back her hours from full-time to part-time. She likes her job and needs it for the health insurance it provides, but her 12-week-old daughter was having trouble nursing, and paying for full-time infant care was a non-starter for her and her husband. There is no way we can afford $1,500 a month for childcare on our full-time salaries, said Ms. Charney, 32. We would go into debt just so that I could work full time. For a while, she was struggling to find any child care at all. She couldn't afford full-time help, and the daycare center where she had put down a deposit wouldn't give her a discount if she used it only part-time. She was frantically looking for other options when good news arrived. The most affordable nursery in her area, where she had been on the waiting list since October 2021, had a part-time opening. The days, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, were not exactly right for her professional schedule, but the place was just $246 per week, so she was going to try it. I know we can make it work if we're careful and we cut back on other expenses, she said. 
Ms. Charney's husband sells shoes at REI, and together they make about $60,000 before taxes. Economists have long identified a lack of available and affordable childcare as a reason American women do not work more, sometimes by comparing the United States with Canada, which is economically similar in many ways, but has more generous childcare and parental leave policies and a higher rate of female employment. The same is true for parts of Europe. Until 1995, the U.S. was the world's leader in terms of female labor force participation, said Claudia Golden, an economist at Harvard. Now this host of countries that we used to think were backward in terms of gender norms have exceeded the U.S. And it is no surprise that the burden of care without professional help falls on workers with less education who tend to earn less. This concludes the reading of the New York Times. Your reader for today has been Blanca Michael Ward. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please feel free to call us at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening, and now please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.